Also on the matter of race as well, when black people have been engaging in sexual expression, that can sometimes be seen more risky by professionals as well. And I found that sometimes with my participants, when they started to talk about risk, they would use the example of impatience of colour. And that's where race started to be brought up. You'd see language like, ah, he was a big black man and expressing this threat. So I think it's really important that we're aware of how our kind of personal values being allowed into the system through the policy vacuum and how our values are affecting our decision making around this and how we're seeing sex in general. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Rebecca Morgan is a trainee clinical psychologist who's exploring how people in hospital express their sexuality. And I had a chat with Rebecca after seeing an advert she'd posted for research participants. And it really made me wonder why we'd taken so long for this subject to be explored. So really delighted to have Rebecca with us today to talk about um, our attitudes towards people in hospital having sex lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Hi, and I'm David. Rebecca, very pleased to meet you, and thanks a lot for coming and joining us. Thank you. Rebecca, how did you get interested in this subject? What made it speak to you so clearly? Because I suppose when you said that's what you researched, and I was like, oh my God, yeah, why hasn't it been researched sooner? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's quite an interesting reaction. There's been a lot of people who've reacted in different ways when I've said that I'm doing this. Some are quite surprised, some have wondered if it's appropriate, some have wondered what my motivations are for doing it. I think Really, what kind of brought me into it was working as an AP, working as a HCA in hospitals and really spending, you know, a 12 hour shift or a long time with a patient group and experiencing some of those sexual expressions that often take place in hospitals. And sometimes they could make you feel quite intimidated and you'd wonder how to deal with them and why they might be coming up. And then Actually, sometimes I realised that as a member of staff, I was the one who was probably being quite intimidating and invading the patient's personal space. Different things would come up, like sometimes there'd been like unwanted touching that I'd experienced, and I'd try and make sense of that, the person being in the hospital, and actually there are reasons why they are doing this right now, and they're not necessarily given a different outlet other than the one that is inappropriate to express themselves. And other times it'd be one-to-one in a patient's room on a night shift where they might be touching themselves. And actually, I felt like the slightly odd person being in the corner of the room, observing them, why that was happening. And I think I spent some time with myself thinking about what that felt like and realising that actually this person isn't doing it to offend me or be inappropriate towards me. And actually really, in a way, it's me impinging on their privacy in a way, in a necessary way. But just trying to make sense of the situations that, that often do come up in hospitals, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. As you're talking then with some of your examples, it made me wonder whether we give enough support to healthcare workers around sexuality. My niece is training as a nurse and mm. I've been really shocked by the number of times male patients have been inappropriate and that's just seen as being part of the work that you have to laugh off. Men saying that they couldn't, weren't able to 
take care of their hygiene needs, for instance, and trying to get young nursing staff to to be involved with their bodies and and wondering does the inability to think about sex at all mean that we're then not also helping people be safe and protected when they're at work yeah definitely I think there's a lot there and for me it was I wasn't necessarily given a framework to be able to process those experiences it seemed that all sexual expression on wards was labelled as inappropriate, like the ward was seen as a public space and therefore these things shouldn't happen, which is all well and good if you're only going to be there a couple of weeks, but if you're there long term, forensic wards especially, learning disability wards especially, where we know that people are there for longer times, it seems tricky to pretend these things don't happen because they do. So for me, the framework that we were given wasn't quite appropriate for what was actually happening and making sense of the experiences. So I think for me personally, I would like to see the framework become a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more sensitive towards people's needs, as well as protecting staff at the same time. And I don't necessarily see those two things as opposite. I think if we start to accept that actually some of the patients do have sexual needs and these are normal and natural and give them ways in which they can express them rather than shutting all of them down, pretending it doesn't happen and labelling all sexual expressions, no matter whether they're offensive or inoffensive, as inappropriate, then we give people a pathway that is perhaps slightly more palatable to us as staff, rather than pathologise and stigmatise everything. And certainly what you're describing on the nursing placement, I think that's such a common experience for staff, where they are in these situations and something that is deliberately inappropriate and offensive is happening. And then sometimes other people can respond and be like, oh, it's just part of the job. You take them on for the team, laugh it off, pretend that the, sec- the patient's sexuality is funny or belittle it in some way. And I, I don't think that really leads to the right outcomes for staff. It gives the message that we should tolerate being what is basically sexually abused in some way and also turns the, the patient's sexuality into some form of joke or something that is becomes extra pathological when it may not have started off that way. I think I'd like to see more of a middle ground where we're able to process these things with a little bit more nuance and develop maybe more sensitive frameworks around them. Thank you. As you're talking, I was wondering, for a starting point, what, what are clinical psychologists taught about sex during training? When I trained, which was 25 years ago, any discussion about sex was really limited to talking about sexual dysfunction and there wasn't really much consideration given to sex in healthier ways or integrating it into other parts. I'm hoping you're going to say things have moved on a bit. I'm not necessarily sure they have. I think they have in some ways. I think my perception is training has become a little bit more intersectional, so we're perhaps more used to thinking about sexual orientation. But I think when it comes to thinking about sexual expression more broadly, there's still not a lot there. I'm coming into my third year now, and most of the training we've had has been related to sexual function or sexual risk. But then we also spend an awful lot of time talking about relationships as psychologists in general. And for me, those two things don't sit that well together. Sexual relationships are obviously a really important relationship that we have. Why are we not talking about this a bit more? And that was partly why I wanted to study psychologists in particular, because a lot of the kind of participants that have been involved in research on this matter so far and a lot of the authors are coming from psychiatric and nursing backgrounds. They've really got this kind of medical model in their heads, which, like training, is focused on the risk, either STIs or pregnancy or sexual assault. 
and it's really missing out that relational component and the more kind of holistic view of the person and I think although we're not necessarily being set up to do it in training psychologists do have something to offer when we get into the field of being able to take this kind of wider view of the person and demedicalize it a bit and see them beyond their pathology and look at relationships as a way of recovery as well so yeah I don't think it's changed a lot but I'm in practice things are a little bit more informed than than they are in training (laughs) difference in terms of what happens in Britain around I suppose what is standard approach to sexual expression in hospitals I'm gleaning from what you're saying but it's still there mustn't be any sex sexual expression because yeah so partly what I've been doing is looking at the literature from different countries and seeing which countries are actually speaking on this topic and which aren't and what I've been looking at in particular is which countries tend to have policies on sexual expression in the UK there is no national policy on sexual expression if policies exist they tend to be at trust level or at ward level or just don't exist in general, and then it's down to clinical and personal judgment. However, if you go over to some countries in Europe, Germany and Switzerland, for example, then there are policies on sexual expression and how this can be supported as a kind of positive aspect of recovery. In the US, you get you do have policies, but they tend to be more blanket on sex and sexual expression. Having a read of some of them, they can be quite interesting. There's very specific advice in there about hand-holding or gift exchanges and someone having to be in the room at the same time. We're in a bit of a kind of strange grey area when it comes to sex in the UK. And I think the provision in the UK is quite different as well. So again, other countries in Europe, they actually have conjugal suites where people's partners can come in and stay with them and perhaps spend the night. Whereas the idea of that happening in the UK seems quite strange and quite wild. There's definitely some cultural differences there. And when different kind of professional groups have been surveyed as well, the ones in the UK have tended to hold more conservative beliefs because I think we actually have quite a a risk-averse culture in the NHS at the moment. We're in quite a litigious climate, we're very worried about what could go wrong, what could the media impact be, what could the legal impact be and I think it's really fed into this risk-averse climate as well as there being perhaps more conservative views in the UK in comparison to other countries just in our culture more generally. So yeah I think it's created quite a restrictive mix. Yeah, and we have a reputation for being prudish, don't we, and repressive anyway. And it sounds like you're saying that we live up to that when it comes to our attitude towards sex and patients as well. Yeah, sadly, I think we have. And (laughs) I think it would be great if we didn't live up to the stereotype. But there are differences between professional groups within the UK and personal differences as well. And I think one of the things that I've seen in my research so far is that where we are in that grey area with policy and we don't really know what the rules are, it's meant a lot of the decisions are being left up to personal judgments. And obviously, as psychologists, we're quite aware of how our personal values and beliefs might affect our clinical practice. And so you see people's views on things like kind of race, sexuality, gender, really shape how they're viewing inpatient sexual expressions. There's kind of evidence in research so far and in kind of my participants that if a woman is engaging in sexual expression, she might be seen as more vulnerable. She might be more likely to be seen as the victim. If it's a man, the opposite, he might be an aggressor. However, the situation flips around when you're talking about homosexuality and it might actually be that women who are engaging in same-sex practices, they might be seen as more threatening. With gay men, there's more of a risk around HIV there that's perceived or is chemsex going on. 
trans people as well are really getting the stuff into the deal when it comes to inpatient sexual expression. A lot of that seems to be pathologised and also on the matter of race as well, when black people have been engaging in sexual expression, that can sometimes be seen more risky by professionals as well. And I found that sometimes with my participants, when they started to talk about risk, they would use the example of impatience of colour. And that's where race started to be brought up. You'd see language like, ah, oh, he was a big black man and expressing this threat. So I think it's really important that we're aware of how our kind of personal values being allowed into the system through the policy vacuum and how our values are affecting our decision making around this and how we're seeing sex in general. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of your little list there of being prudish and repressive and I was going to add uh, uh, um, um, uh, a resentment at uh, people taking illegitimate pleasure uh, of things um, and so Certainly that's true in prisons, that prisoners aren't supposed to have any pleasure or happiness. And people in public services should only receive what they're there for and not enjoy it at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that does come up in the research a little bit where people's sex drives aren't going to go away the second they step foot in the hospital, the second they step foot in a prison. And by banning sex, we turn people's normal, natural, healthy, perfectly social, socially acceptable sex drives into something pathological and stigmatised. And I'm interested to see what happens once these people leave hospital or leave prison. Do they view their sexuality as different? Do they see themselves as a threat, inappropriate, or feel ashamed for kind of feeling and thinking the things that they're thinking? And I wonder if there is a longer-term impact on people's sexual expression once they've been in these institutions and then left. Rebecca, do you think that we uh, increase risk by banning sex? I think so. I think to a degree. I think it's one of those ones where you try and button down all the risk and inadvertently end up actually creating kind of new risks in doing so. I think if all sexual expression is seen as pathological and inappropriate, then the incentives of the patient to choose what might be a slightly more offensive form of sexual expression over a less offensive form of reduced. If people aren't given an appropriate space in which they can express themselves, then they may as well choose any of the spaces. So if you don't have privacy in your bedroom or you're told off for, say, masturbating in your bedroom, then, you know, what's the difference in choosing the public areas to do that? So, yeah, I think there is kind of risk brought in. And I think where staff in the UK especially have been left in a, a bit of a grey space, I think sometimes staff are a little bit worried about actually can I intervene in this area can I have this conversation with this patient or am I professionally overstepping if I bring up the matter of sex um so I wonder if there are things that are going on in patients lives that sometimes we don't see because we don't ask about them or if we do know about them and sometimes we turn a blind eye to them because we don't necessarily know how to deal with them and if it's okay to deal with them some of those gray areas might be things like you know if two patients go on leave and they're in a sexual relationship together is it okay that they see each other while they're on leave and is that something that we turn a blind eye to or do we start having open conversations about what these patients relationships are what's going on outside of the hospital and is it okay to intervene in that part of people's lives or should we just ignore it and save ourselves the hassle yeah, 
This thing, this thing about culture is very important, isn't it? I, I used to work on a, an adult acute psychiatric ward, uh, and people were there for quite a long time sometimes, and it ran as a therapeutic community. But the issue of sex and relationships between patients was an absolutely electric topic. You know, it was as void as much as possible. But if, <laughs> if it was perceived in any way, the atmosphere really became quite toxic mm. and punitive. Mm. So, but it sounds as if you would like to see our institutions facilitating opportunities for people to have sexual relationships within um, hospitals or prisons. Is that right? To a degree, I think what I would really like to see is more questioning of the decisions that we make and how we arrive at them. And I think a move away from black and white ideas about sex is not okay, basically. I think there's one paper which kind of surveyed inpatients on a ward and it said that 30% had engaged in sexual behaviour while they were there. This is clearly happening, but I think we just need to find slightly more sophisticated ways of dealing with it that aren't just to say, this can't happen, and if it does, then that's pathological. I think, especially for psychologists, to find, to be able to have conversations with people about what is healthy sexual expression, what sexual expressions are good for recovery, what sexual expressions feel okay for the people on the ward and make the people around them feel comfortable as well, to engage in some of the thought processes that we might have outside of the hospital where we think, oh, am I behaving appropriately here? Is this the right time and space to do it? Um, those kind of thoughts. Just to be able to be a little bit more sensitive to what um, people's needs are rather than just blanket bans or um, decision-making that's made purely on individual values, I think is something that, that I would like to see. Um, so I, was just, I was just going to ask, have there been any research that's asked patients themselves what they would like and for ways to manage some of the... Not a lot, to be honest. There has been very little patient voice in this area. I did manage to find one source and it talked about the damage that was done in terms of people's sexuality becoming pathologised and stigmatised. So the dehumanising element of going onto a ward and then suddenly not becoming a sexual person. But beyond that, there is precious little. And that is something that I would like to do more of in the future, obviously going through NHS ethics and so on is always a bit of a time-consuming thing. I focused on the clinical psychologists this time because I didn't really hear their voices either, but I think in future I would like to speak to patients a little bit more as well because I think I think there are so many kind of cultural issues that come into play for our view of sex and I think patients can be quite sensitive to those. We have a history of pathologizing homosexuality, pathologizing kind of fetish, pathologizing women who might be sexual. Psychology's relationship with sex has not always been a healthy one. And the eugenics movement as well. And I think this has left us with a lot of ideas over who should have sex and who shouldn't, and whose sex is okay and whose sex isn't. And I think as well as hearing from psychologists while coming from that historical lens, it would be really nice to hear patients' voices a little bit more, I think, just to question some of those ideas that unconsciously we might have started to hold. So keeping that in mind, what you've just been saying, what what kind of messages are we are we giving to patients by banning sex? 
I think letting people know that their sexuality and their sexual expression isn't okay. I think that there's a perception that people are somehow less human. I think there's a real kind of power imbalance going on there that probably needs to be looked at where perhaps like mental health staff overstepping into areas of patients' lives where there might not actually be anything particularly problematic happening. One of the messages that I'm interested in as well is sex as a coping mechanism and the value of sex to recovery. Looking at discourses outside of mental health wards and prisons, if you open up Elle magazine or Cosmopolitan or Men's Health, you'll see headlines in there about sex is healthy, sex is good for you, sex can make you happy. As soon as we take people onto a ward or a prison or a hospital, the situation becomes quite different. So some of the coping mechanisms that people might have used to regulate their emotions, such as masturbation or being able to have a hug with a partner or hold hands or a cuddle or have sex, those coping mechanisms aren't there anymore. I think we have to pay attention. Does that work better? Well, let's see. It's less strain, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Rebecca, I was thinking that Culturally, our society is so ambivalent about sex, isn't isn't it? So culturally, there's a lot of shame around sex, and particularly at an early age. And yet at the same time, it's everywhere. And it's flaunted on the television, films, adverts, wherever you look, there's some expression of sexuality and uh, uh, really a a desire for sexual contact. And so I think people are intrinsically very confused about it. So that it's banned in all these hospitals and other settings, it must surely just be exacerbating that sense of shame, don't you think? I think so. I think to a degree, I think I can really relate to what you're saying about this obsession with sex. It's like we... We might ban it in the ward, but then when it comes to the MDT, we're obsessed with talking about it. And, or in the break room, or if people come back from a certain session, there's a lot of gossip over things that might have happened. And as staff, between each other, we spend a lot of time talking about it. But do we really spend that time thinking about it as much with patients as well? And I think you're right about the sense of shame too. I think there is a real lack of dignity that we offer to patients in the realm of sex. Um not offering them privacy when actually it might be safe to do so. If people are on 15-minute checks, then having someone knocking on your door and coming in every 15 minutes is not necessarily going to give you the dignity and privacy that, you know, might actually be safe for you. Um, And I've heard of kind of other policies as well where sex toys have been allowed on towards, but obviously people are subject to a bag check. Obviously all these items have to be checked in. Batteries can be a real problem as well because people are battery swallowing. I've heard of kind of situations where patients have had to go to nurses and say, oh, please, can I have my vibrator? Which is quite a gutsy thing to have to say. And I think there's something quite undignified that we do to people in asking them to do that. And then the patient has to take it in a Ziploc bag along the corridor to their room in full view of everyone else who might be on the wards. I think partly what we're doing with the way that we're practicing at the moment is instilling a sense of shame even when we're trying to give people as much freedom as possible i think perhaps having slightly more national guidance slightly more trust level guidance on how can we allow people to be sexual beings and still keep them safe and still offer them the dignity they need might do a lot to de-shame inpatient sexuality and i think also a lot of it comes from us as 
psychologists as well. I think the onus is on us to be comfortable with our own sexuality and to be comfortable about raising these matters and confident in doing so and to be able to say certain words like masturbation or sex in front of clients without getting too squeamish about it and allowing people to open up to us in that way and letting them know that it is okay to have these conversations in this setting and it is an important part of who you are and your mental health. Thank you. You've mentioned staff several times uh, just then you said that you're always talking about sex and the MDT. Um, and and I wonder what uh, you think our policies on sexual expression tell us about uh, staff. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a lack of policy in the UK. I think, sorry, I'm just processing that question, bear with me. I think probably there's a reflection of differences in experience between staff on the floor of awards and in the kind of echelons of management who are having vastly different experiences of inpatient sexual expression. So HTAs and nurses might be seeing a lot of this on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think psychologists see slightly less of it because we might be seeing people um, in sessions more than we are on the floor or in their rooms. And I think when it gets to management level as well, there's even less exposure to this. And I don't know, maybe there's a question there of why is this relevant? Why is this our business? But I think if you speak to staff who are spending 12 and a half hours with a client, then they will be able to tell you why it's relevant. Thank is you. There, is there a gender bias in how comfortable we are with expressions of sexuality in terms of both staff and... Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so this has definitely come up in my interviews so far. I think... Again, because of the the kind of very risk-focused climate that we're in, some of the male psychologists that I've spoken to have been a lot more reluctant to bring these topics up with women in patients because they are worried about will this be perceived as inappropriate. And because they're not being backed up by policy, they out on a limb in a way because no one is saying to them, it's okay that you can bring this up and it's okay to talk about this and it is our business to talk about people's kind of sexual relationships and sexual health. So I think it can be a lot harder for male psychologists and probably male staff in general. Some of the psychologists have noted that male staff are a lot more reluctant to bring matters of sex to the MDT, whereas female staff feel a lot more comfortable in talking about it. And I think, I kind of wonder if there's perhaps something that goes on at a patient level as well, where where male service users might be more likely to be seen as a threat, does it also make it less easy for them to bring it up when they are speaking to staff as well, whereas maybe female inpatients might feel slightly more comfortable, although obviously it's going to be quite tricky for everyone. Thank you. Are you, are you thinking about the nature of the clients that use these services, Rebecca? I'm conscious yeah. that, conscious that a, a history of sexual abuse is really high amongst patients in inpatient settings. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the things that is really tricky when we talk about this issue. I think it's, we know that obviously there's a really high percentage of people who are on wards who have experienced sexual abuse and some kind of situations can be quite re-traumatising. I think it's still important that we talk about it and that we think about kind of sexual expression and how it can be important, how it can be important in that light, because, you know, something patients might do is reenact um, experiences that they've had in the past and you know um, the solution to that isn't well we're just not going to do sex at all um, 
it's more of actually how can we talk about this? How can we offer healthy um, pro-social kind of opportunities um, for people to engage in sexual expression without it being so dangerous? And I think for people who have experienced abuse as well, shame is likely to be higher, stigmatisation is likely to be higher, their own kind of internalised negative perceptions around sex are likely to be more present as well. So I think developing healthy conceptualizations around sexual expression, seeing the value of it for recovery might maybe perhaps start to undo some of the damage that's been done rather than just say we've got people here who've experienced sexual trauma hence this has to be a sexless space because it probably isn't helping a lot of people I would say. Thank you and I suppose when I saw your posting on social media it reminded me of um, a conversation we had with Shona Heron, who was also a training clinical psychologist when she came on as a, a guest. And she'd been researching emptiness. And of mm. course, emptiness is one of those, one of the diagnostic criteria of borderline personality disorder. So something people talk about a lot, but actually it really struck me how it had taken a long time for somebody to actually dig into that experience and want to understand it. And I had the same feeling when I saw your advert that why hasn't this been explored previously? Why haven't people made more effort to get to grips with it? And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think there's a perception that it's not relevant to what we do, that we have no right to be in this space, that it's inappropriate to be in this space. And I think a lot of those feelings have come up for me as well when I've been doing interviews. We've been discussing the sex lives of people that I've never met and talking about those in detail. And I think, I guess you can ask the question, what, what business do we have doing that as professionals? But I think on the flip side of it, we're in every other aspect of people's lives as well. We're involved in what clothes they choose to wear, their diet, their money handling, all the other sensitive topics in society. So I think it makes sense that we're here as well. And I think maybe differences in how wards are being managed and how mental health has been structured as well, I think have led to the way things are. I think the medical model has been the model of choice in the past. So I think it makes sense that a lot of the literature is very kind of risk focused and a lot of the current policy or kind of practice is very risk focused and actually perhaps now there are kind of opportunities to feel more comfortable with kind of having these conversations and seeing people a little bit more holistically um and perhaps you know now we're in a good place for that to change as um our systems are changing well it seems really important and just thinking about if like for those clinical psychologists who end up working with forensic populations for mm. instance and having to think about deviant sexuality and mm. sexual risk it's like how well can you do that if you're not comfortable and don't have a really thorough sense of what is healthy um sexual expression actually if you're just basing it solely on your own experiences then we're likely to be missing something or people are likely to not be comfortable asking the kinds of questions that they ought to be asking yes. but also just thinking about relation couple work for instance I know it's really hard for people to find couple therapists or couples to find a therapist that will work with them as a couple and I think part of that might be also about the fact that therapists often don't have the training and skills to be able they're not thinking about sex enough as part of their training to to feel comfortable going into that domain yeah it kind of falls into that bucket of difficult conversations doctors or nurses who have to talk about death there'll be a lot of practicing of how do we talk about death but 
I think oh, certainly my experience of training so far is that sex can be quite taboo um, and I think there's a lot of anxiety amongst the participants that I've spoken to so far of is it okay to bring this up does is this my role um, and if it is how is it going to be perceived um, but yeah and I think the other issue you brought up like the forensic side of things I think is really interesting as well and oddly forensic settings in some ways do seem to be slightly more liberal environments than mental health wards at times because the prison population historically has had certain privileges such as the conjugal suites or being able to have contact with a partner that might not have taken place in kind of mental health hospitals historically. For me it's been interesting to compare the forensic side of things to mental health more generally and actually discover that sometimes the situation is a little bit slightly more liberal on the forensic side of things. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, and interesting enough, I think what we haven't mentioned is uh, sex between staff, which can be another uh, electric uh, topic, but that's perhaps subject for the next time we meet with you on a podcast. But, uh, yeah, and yeah. Um, I think also just dropping in here, that's something that impatients are aware of when there are two staff who are hugging at the end of a shift or you've got the same surnames. I've had participants bring this up and sometimes there's a little bit of attention there of, okay, how come these professionals are allowed to do it in this allegedly public environment and yet I can't? So yeah, all interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, so there is that idea, isn't there, that, that staff cope with difficult experiences by bonding through adversity and having sex and the the kind of like instinct for life to counteract the death instinct amongst hospital settings so that often there's yeah. quite incestuous relationships amongst staff groups and in, in hospitals it seems and prisons also yeah it becomes a little bit love island at times <laughs> so, so what are you looking for in your research participants Rebecca yeah so I'm, I'm looking for clinical psychologists um, who've worked in an inpatient environment in the UK um, in the last three years and Really, I'm just looking at pulling out their kind of views and practice and what actually is it that clinical psychologists do around sex um, in relation to inpatients and why? Um, because this is a tricky matter for everyone to deal with. Um, it seems so far that clinical psychologists have been largely unsupported, but I think we've got an important role to play. Um, so um, if there's anyone out there who's interested in speaking um, on those matters, then um, please do drop me a line on Twitter. My handle is Sai Rebecca, which you hopefully can find by searching. Yeah, it'd be great to speak to anyone who's interested in talking about it. Great. Uh, we can put that uh, Twitter thingy on, on the um, <laughs> notes when we uh, publish the podcast. Finally, sorry. We all know that clinical training is notoriously stressful and demanding. How do you look after yourself? How do you keep yourself happy and nourished? I think that's probably one of the more difficult questions you've asked me. Definitely, I think it is a lot of work. I think time management is key. I'm lucky in that I've had a, this is a second career for me. I've, I've been used to busy environments and managing my time. I think I could be quite hooked on that at times, making sure that I've got my time scheduled. Outside of that, I think it's just having a really kind of good friendship group. I've noticed that a lot of my friends are mental, working in mental health or healthcare in general. 
where you can come home after a long day and say all the things that you might not have been able to say at work and just have that sympathy there just like a good support network who really understands what the issues are and I think also remembering that while you're doing it like for me I came into mental health because it was something that was meaningful and purposeful for me so I think that's what keeps me going and yeah gives me the drive to carry on so <laughs> thank you very much indeed <laughs> thank you so much Thanks very much, Rebecca. That was great.